world of the Bible. This is lesson nine, people. How is everybody doing? I hope you're doing well. Sorry for the little delay here. It's been a while since I've put together some of these episodes, so I'm going to catch up. Watch for it. We're going to have quite a few in a row here. So we, last time, we had a lesson. We were thinking about what is up there and who is up there within an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And I want to revisit just that concept because we're going to be making a transition to what's down here. Um, What did they think was going on down here on this earth? What's going on with mountains and gardens and trees and temples? We're going to talk about all that stuff. But I want to just highlight, again, this concept of the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. So to do that, I want to use an article from Michael Heiser that he wrote. And I'm going to read that article. And he's got a couple verses along the way that he's going to read that... um, actually that I'm going to read, um, that I think will help in us processing some of this. So my intent in, in this is for, one, us to have a, a proper uh, and more accurate understanding of the way someone in the ancient Near East thought about the world and the way an Israelite would think. So I actually am going to be taking the position that I think the ancient Near Eastern idea of the way the universe looked, what's up there, what's down here, what's below the earth, was the same that the Israelite had as well. And there's some complications with that that I'm going to have to explain a little bit to you guys, um, or complications that some perceive. So As I read the article, I will um, read the passages that are are referenced along the way. So here we go. I'll I'll attach this article as well. If you guys want to look at it yourself, uh, I'll attach it in Google Classroom. Genesis and Ancient Near Eastern Cosmology. You ready to go? I know I read titles like that, and I know some people probably think that sounds like the most boring thing ever. I find this so utterly fascinating. And I I really do believe that this helps us read our Bible better. The more we get into the mind of someone, the biblical author, and think the way they did, the more it's going to help me understand the Bible. Here we go. Proper interpretation of the Bible requires an understanding of the original context in which it was written. This is particularly true for the Old Testament. God chose a specific time, place, and culture in which to inspire faithful persons to produce what we read in the Old Testament. The ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Near East of the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. Understanding their worldview leads to a more faithful understandings on our part as misreadings result from assuming the biblical writers thought, believed, and acted as we do. Quick pause here. 
John Walton talks about a cultural river that they had, that they were floating in back then. And our cultural river that we have today and the way we think about things is very different than the way they did. And I, I find those ideas helpful, guys, in, in how we approach the text. I think for me, the way I've described it to you guys in this class is we have our bags packed for this trip and we have presuppositions and, and biases in the way we think and perceive. And we've packed our bags and we're taking those with us. And we can, uh, Walton says, fill in the gaps of misunderstanding when we read the text with our own ideas. And so back to this article, Heiser is saying that we need to understand their worldview and we cannot assume that they think the way we think. Back to the article. Unfamiliar to most of us, this world would have been even more unfamiliar to students of the Bible living before the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The languages of the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Egyptians, and Canaanites were deciphered for the first time only in the past 200 years. The intimate relationship between the Old Testament and the literature and the ideas of these civilizations became accessible only after such developments in ancient language studies. This opened an extraordinary window for understanding what the biblical writers meant. These connections significantly impacted our understanding of what the of the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, quick pause here. <clears throat> this is such a big deal, and it it can help answer a question that some might have: uh, Why? How come the church hasn't always thought like this? And the reality is, the nature of what the Bible is as an ancient document created this scenario where their culture and ideas were not, it was lost. Uh, it was not available to Bible scholars for the last 18 or 19 centuries. And then when these tablets and, and texts start getting found and translated starting around 1850, this whole world just opens up. So I, I may have said this before, but they found over a million tablets. So that's the answer. And that is helpful for me in, in understanding how come the church hasn't always thought about this stuff. Um, but if you go through church history, you can see how understanding about the Bible has always been developed and continues to. So that's just the reality of studying the Bible. That doesn't mean everything in the Bible develops like that, but some things do. And I think ideas of cosmology are a, a good example of that. Back to the article. What is cosmology? The term cosmology refers to the way in which we understand the structure of the universe. The biblical writer's concept of how the heavens and the earth were structured by God represents a particular cosmology. This cosmology involves ideas about where God dwells within the known universe. 
and reflects the writer's experience or understanding of the world, not historical or scientific fact. For example, cosmologies include descriptions about places and events humans do not experience until death or unless permitted by an act of God to do so. So a cosmology is quite simply, guys, the conceptual map that they had, the structure of the universe. And I don't think there's any difference between the Israelite cosmology and a cosmology of the Babylonians and the Egyptians in terms of their understanding of the makeup of everything. Back to the article now. The Israelites believed in a universe structure that was common among the ancient civilizations of the biblical world. Yeah, I agree with Heiser here. It encompassed three parts, a heavenly realm, an earthly realm, and an underworld for the dead. The vocabulary of this cosmology is also similar to that found in the literature of Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Canaan. The three tiers are reflected in the Ten Commandments. Have you ever thought of this? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, there's tier one, or that is in the earth beneath, tier two, or that is in the water under the earth. Heiser gives a couple other um, texts here. So Psalm 33, 6 through 8, here we go. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, which includes, I think, their spiritual beings, the lights. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So we have the heavens. We have the waters and the deeps, and we have the earth. There's the three-tiered um, cosmos. And then we have Proverbs 8, 27 through 29. It says, when he established the heavens, wisdom is, is speaking as the eye. I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, so looking from above and looking down, there's a circle. When he made firm the skies above. How can the skies be firm? Uh, because I, I think it's a, uh, a dome-like structure. When he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned uh, to the sea its limit so that the waters might not tra transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Philippians 2.10. How about this one? This will be interesting because this one's about uh, Jesus. And you might know this one. This is, uh, I believe, the every... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Did you hear it? Three-tiered cosmology. And then you have Revelation 5, verse 3. And no one in heaven 
or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. <clears throat> so there's a lot of passages that use this vocabulary. And I don't think it's just metaphor. I think it's because that is the, the cosmology of that day. There wouldn't be a different one. The heavens, now back to the article. Genesis 1, 6 through 8 presents a basic understanding of the heavens. And God said, let there be an expanse, the Hebrew word is rakia, in the midst of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. We've talked about this a bit. The sky, thought to be a solid firmament, separated the waters above from the waters that were below. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep. In Job 37, 18, Elihu argues, can you, like God, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? The firmament dome surrounded the earth with its edge meeting at the horizon, the, the boundary between light and darkness. And it's it was supported by pillars or foundations thought to be the tops of the mountains whose peaks appeared to touch the sky. The heavens had doors and windows through which rain or waters could flow upon the earth from their storehouses, like in, in the flood. Genesis 1 describes waters above and below the solid firmament. This belief is also reflected in Psalm 148. Four. I want to read that one. Psalm 148.4. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. <laughs> That's what it says. Um, now, I know some would want to go the route of saying that maybe these waters are um, just part of the water cycle. But I, I don't think that's um, really what the, the text is getting at here. They, they just believe there's a bunch of water up there. God was thought to dwell above the firmament, as described in Job 22, 14. Thick clouds veil him, so he does not see, and he walks on the vault of the heaven. Now we get to the earth and underworld. Here's where we're going. The earth sat atop the watery deep. The waters below refer not only to waters that humans use, but also the deeper abyss. Thus, the earth was surrounded by the seas, having arisen out of the water. And he quotes uh, right here, Second Peter 3.5. Let me read that. For they deliberately overtook this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. The earth was thought to be held fast by pillars or sunken foundations. And in fact, there's quite a few texts, guys, where it says the earth will not move. Then we have the last tier, which is the realm of the dead, the realm of the dead was located under the earth. The most frequent term used for this place was Sheol. The Hebrew word uh, for earth, Eretz, 
is also used since the graves dug by the humans represented gateways to the underworld. In Job, the realm of the dead was all, was described in watery terms. Listen to this, guys. Job 25, 5 through 6, 26, 5 through 6. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. Did you hear that? So we have the dead in Sheol, and there's water all around. Jonah's description is perhaps the most vivid. Though in the belly of a great fish, Jonah says he is in the underworld, the watery deep at the roots of the mountains. It's a pit that had bars that closed forever. That's Jonah chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. So let me just address uh, in the last couple of minutes here, I finished with the article, just a way to process this. I think for some people, I understand that this, this makes them uncomfortable because it seems to be suggesting that um, the Bible is teaching something that's wrong. Um, or that we we know we know that there's no uh, big ocean up in the sky, no dome. We know that under the earth, we know that the earth is not flat, um, but the Bible sure speaks as if it is. And we know that Sheol is not below us here, guys, with water surrounding it where dead people are. We just know that that's not true. But this gets to a question about communication and truth and how we think about our Bible. And so I would encourage you to think about this, this idea that, that God is using the ideas and concepts that were present at that day to communicate a truth. But the intended truth that is being communicated is not a declaration about cosmology. It's a truth about God and about us. Truth and the agenda of the truth to be conveyed is from the author. And I think we impose our expectations on the author when we say that the cosmology has to be the cosmology that we think is right. And that seems to be us imposing our agenda on the text, on the author, rather than letting the author speak to the audience that he's speaking to. So I don't think this is an issue of inerrancy. This is where the conversation will often go. Um, the claim is that if God is teaching a three-tiered cosmology in the Bible, then the Bible is in error. And I just don't think that that has to be the necessary conclusion here. I think I can recognize that God is trying to communicate an idea to people in ways that they're going to get, and he's not interested in communicating um, our modern scientific ideas to them because they wouldn't have cared about that, and it wouldn't have made sense to them. And so I want to really challenge us to be hesitant to say, hey, God, how come you didn't talk about our science to them as if 
<laughs> what we think is so important really is that important. Um, maybe, just maybe, God knows what's more important to communicate. And it's our job to enter into that ancient conversation and be a part of it, rather than dragging the, the Bible um, completely into the modern world and forcing it to speak in modern terms. The Bible most definitely can speak into our culture, but it wasn't originally written to our culture. And I think we have to continue to wrestle with that distinction. I look forward to, in the next lesson, processing ideas now about what's down here on earth. And we're going to be jumping into thinking about temples and mountains and gardens and how that fits with the language that we find uh, in the Bible about all those things and ultimately about God's presence.